Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for Mardi Gras Week. That is the week of February 16th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the debate over whether to play the national anthem at sporting events. We'll also discuss what the pandemic taught us about the mysteries of home field advantage. And Ryan Smith of ESPN will join us for a conversation about a lawsuit alleging that the NFL's concussion settlement discriminates against black players. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn, season four on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and 23 Across in the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. That was very exciting. Was that your first Sunday appearance? It was, it was my first Sunday appearance. I've been in the daily once as my name once with the book as the answer and the biggest thrill was when i was the acrostic right after word freak was published in the time you're gonna get this framed you know i haven't gotten the other ones framed maybe it's time to frame something you got a lot of space back there in that room so you could just a lot of (laughs) room area there subtle subtle critique that's a that's uh, an angled ceiling joel kind of hard to hang yeah. things but people do that yeah, well, i'm gonna like that book back there anyway you know yeah. we can interior design later no problem okay uh with us from palo alto slate's staff writer and uh wannabe hgtv host the host of Silburn season three and six a man who is still waiting for his king cake or did did the king cake arrive joel king cake didn't arrive and i gave up on it um, oh i I, I'm disputing it through my, <laughs> through, my <laughs> through my bank right now. So <laughs> a man, a man who's him. disputing his king cake through his bank, Joel Anderson. I got two yeah. things though. One, your wall is completely bare behind you, and two, king cakes yeah. are kind of gross, aren't they? Oh, I mean that is just blasphemy. Why would you say that? So disrespectful. Yeah, it's disrespectful to our culture. It really is. And I was, I was trying to get a rise out of you both. It was the one thing I, I figured could yeah. work. I was looking very much forward to the peaches and cream king cake that was coming up here. Um, oh, but that is we'll gross. All right, on. I'm, I'm on Stefan's side now. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You guys have to try it. It's a, it's a great place. But I mean, I, I, I'm not going to talk them up after they failed me so, so badly. So maybe it is gross. I'm not going to say their name, though. All right, peaches and cream king cake company. You see what you've, what you've lost? You would have had uh, so much amazing product placement. Now we're just... Uh, talking around you. As everyone knows, I have some of the best food opinions out there. I'm a food influencer, so. We'll just leave Joel's food comment hanging out there and get right to the show. Sometime before the NBA regular season, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban told NBA commissioner Adam Silver that his team wasn't going to play the national anthem before home games. And why would it? Because of the pandemic, there were no fans, and the players certainly wouldn't miss it. 
Silver said fine, and for 12 pre- and regular season games, no one noticed. Then last week, Tim Cato of The Athletic did notice. Cuban confirmed his decision, and the NBA defended it, saying that, quote, under the unique circumstances of this season, teams are permitted to run their pregame operations as they see fit. Then came the predictable blowback, and within 24 hours, the NBA came up with an excuse. Since it was starting to let fans back into arenas, it once again would require teams to play the Star-Spangled Banner, quote, in keeping with longstanding league policy, end quote. Joel, after the league's ruling, Cuban put out a statement. One sentence was about respect for the passion some people have for the anthem. The next four sentences were about why the anthem is problematic. We also loudly hear the voices of those who feel that the anthem does not represent them, Cuban wrote. We feel that their voices need to be respected and heard because they have not been. Joel, you really know that Cuban believes that playing the anthem before games is bullshit. Should he have fought this? Um, the shorter answer is, I don't know if Mark Cuban had a choice. You remember that Mark Cuban told ESPN that he made the decision to stop playing the anthem after consulting with Adam Silver, the commissioner. So this wasn't something he felt that he could do unilaterally in the first place. And I don't know what sort of power governors or owners, as you know, we used to call them, have to defy league orders. Um, he clearly didn't feel empowered to do this on his own, so he may have not had a choice. But I suppose that he could have made more of a stink about it, like he does about officiating or the league's failure to take advantage of you know various financial opportunities or even like Bitcoin, right? Like he when when he feels passionate about something, he tends to speak up about it and speak up about it forcefully. He's carried himself out, you know figuratively as a maverick, right? That he's different from the other owners and that he will talk about things and he's, you know, quoted as much or more than any other NBA owner in the league. So if he felt really passionately about this, I assume that he would have said more about it. I think the easy answer is here that obviously the NBA shouldn't be playing the national anthem before games. It, it's clear that no one cared until a single person noticed that, hey, we're not going through our little compulsory patriotism routine. So you know, until that one person spoke up, nobody cared. So, you know, Mark Cuban, man, should he have said something? Should he have stood up? I don't know. I'm not surprised he didn't because this is all about not offending the league's tenuous hold on white fans because the NBA has some intractable issues to overcome that other sports simply don't. It's a majority black league and it's a black league in a way that the other professional sports leagues are. So I imagine that the pressure from the NBA um, especially in a city like Dallas, which is often referred to as the city that the civil rights movement missed, that it's incredible. And you know that when push came to shove, that they weren't going to draw a hard line about this. So, you know, I don't know, Josh, you know, you're from the South, too. You know that there's <laughs> a lot of pressure uh, to be a patriot down there and to prove that you're an American. But I don't you know, I, I don't know where Mark Cuban would have gone or what he could have done any differently, so to speak. When political debates like this, Joel, there's a question when you're like an activist or an advocate, do you spend your time and energy and resources pressuring the people that are kind of closer to your side or the people that um, are, you know, of hold, hold a wildly different opinion? Because it seems a little bit misplaced to me to be upset with Mark Cuban and all of this as the person who actually 
enacted this and then like ultimately back down as opposed to any of the other dudes who run NBA teams who would have never considered it in the first place and probably will never consider it. Um, so I, I think credit to Cuban for getting this on people's radar because it's the kind of thing where I think I, I don't want to say we or us, but I think I, I would include myself in this number where you just like don't think about it until someone points it out or brings attention to it. And you're like, yeah, that is crazy and dumb that we do that. But we just kind of move through the world accepting this. And so, you know, I, I think the fact that we're, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for Mark Cuban. Um, and so I give him credit for um, at least doing something and, and forcing us out of the complacency around this issue. Because Stefan, you did a bunch of work compiling the history of the anthem. And like, like everything else, it's like the anthem in sports was a thing that was like created and invented and became kind of compulsory, but it hasn't been that way forever. No, and to put a put a button on Cuban, I think that's the right interpretation. He did something, as Ray Ratto pointed out on Defector, that was very uncharacteristic for him. He showed how much the anthem doesn't matter, and he did it without ever saying a word. You know, Mark Cuban usually, as you noted, Joel, is going to talk about everything. And in this case, he just did it, demonstrated that nobody gives a shit, and then... It's worth reading his full statement. I read only a little bit of it, but it really is very supportive, ultimately, of the idea that, A, this is unnecessary, and B, a lot of our um, employees think that it is disrespectful and people don't understand how they feel when they hear this played and what, as we've seen over the last, not just year, but going back to CAP, how much it does affect people. And, you know, I also of, forgot to mention that the Kaepernick, there's a parallel with Kaepernick and then nobody, no, yeah, nobody, no, noticed nobody noticed that he was sitting right until, until somebody wrote about it, until a reporter noticed. Um, and in both cases, Kaepernick and Cuban were trying to make the point subtly. Um, and that's certainly unusual for Mark Cuban. And it's unusual for a lot of athletes who would just go to a podium and do the thing that you said, Josh, which is to draw attention to their side as opposed to quietly undercutting the arguments of other people. Um, in terms of the history, yeah, this is not clear or linear or uniform. I'm going to talk about a lot of examples in an afterball later, but the short form of this is that yeah, the, the anthem was played like once in 1862 before a baseball game. Um, there's a real good ESPN piece that we'll link to about that history. And then it wasn't played regularly until the 1918 World Series during World War One, and there was a whole lot of stuff going on. And they played it, and then it was very erratically used and sporadically used after that. It was not a universal instant, let's play this before every sporting event. It was much less consistent. Not every team abided by it. Not every sport abided by it. And it only really, in more recent years, became something that people were you know, I mean, when I say recent, I mean like the last half century, um, became ingrained in sports culture. Yeah. And I, I mean, I find that that's probably not a surprise given, you know, how shiftly I, the culture and society has moved in the last half century, you know, where 
where pe- you know, I mean, just to be honest, that black people have rights and you know opinions that at least are heard in the public square in ways that they weren't previously. And so all of a sudden, it's not a surprise that people would you know grasp on the national anthem as some sort of way to prove your you know your loyalty to this country. But you know, I I, I guess the thing about about this is that even for Mark Cuban in the NBA not playing the national anthem and not giving athletes an opportunity to kneel. Like I can actually understand like, if you took the, the national anthem out of the equation, if you took it, then you would not have kneeling as an issue either. So it actually served to help the NBA and the Mavericks so that you can avoid that particular sort of protest and that, partic- that particular kind of symbolism. And I'm actually sort of surprised that the leagues want to keep, you know, to relitigate this battle over and over again. If they took it away, you wouldn't have any black players to respond to kneeling or anything else. But on some level, the NBA, you know, not only endorsed kneeling, but, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that Adam Silver was quietly, and he was publicly supportive of the players' um, protest during the anthem. So you could certainly take a counter-argument that, hey, continuing to play the anthem gives the players the opportunity to express feelings that the league executives and some of its owners certainly support. I mean, I guess, I mean, they're the ones that are making this compulsory. And wasn't it just a few months ago? I mean, a couple of years ago, or was it in the last year? And I should have known this off the top of my head, but that Adam Silver was saying that any player that kneeled was going to be fined. So, I mean, it's a, like, it's a rule in the NBA that you have yeah. to stand and it just hasn't been enforced. Right, exactly. So, I mean, like, we can say that we think that Adam Silver and the owners, you know, might believe about, you know, their players kneeling and whether or not they support them. But, like, in terms of the rules on the books, which they are in charge of, they could change this. They could change that particular rule and they decided not to. But to be honest, I mean, kneeling isn't nearly as effective as it was five years ago anyway, right? Like, I mean, this is sort of a played out. Um, bit of activism or, or protest that, I mean, it's become like <laughs> kneeling has become so watered down that I've lived long enough to see Jerry Jones kneel alongside his players, get booed, and then decree that anybody on his team that takes a knee will be punished in some sort of way. So, I mean, you know, it's, you know, in terms of making some sort of a statement, I, I feel like, okay, well, you know, we've sort of been there, done that. It's probably time to move on. And if you took the national anthem away, you wouldn't have that issue anymore. And that there'd have to be some sort of other way to generate interest around black lives matter and these other, other well, issues, but whatever. Th- I don't, th- there is like a, uh, a third way, Joel, which is that when Megan Rapinoe started kneeling um, to support Kaepernick way back in 2016, the then owner of the Washington NWSL franchise, their solution was we're going to play the national anthem b- before the players come out on the field. And so, you cut off the opportunity to kneel and you still play the anthem. These, these owners are clever. Um, I, will, I will say this. On anything to do with patriotism, once it gets instituted, it's really hard to roll it back. Like think of flag pens after 9-11 and politicians. Like you're not going to see a time when a politician be like, eh, we're not going to wear the flag pen anymore. Like that's, that's over with. So like once you make it um, kind of culturally normed that we're going to play patriotic music before a sporting event. It's really hard to stop doing that without, I don't know if it's fear or legitimate of, um, you know, belief that like, oh, that means you hate America if you're not doing it anymore. But 
the thing that I find so interesting is this idea that like the past year during the pandemic, it's like a time when rules don't, the, the normal way of doing things and the normal rules are kind of suspended. Um, you know, in the bubble, you had players wearing these phrases on the back of their jerseys. You had this allowance being given for kneeling and for players being more outspoken than is typical. And now we're like back in our arenas and there's like a kind of uneasy transition back to the old rules and way of doing things of like, you know, originally Adam Silver said, yeah, because the fans aren't in the stands, then it's okay not to play the anthem. And then there's the blowback. He's like, actually, no, we do need to play the anthem. And so you don't see like, you, the the inverse doesn't really apply, Stefan, where it's like, okay, if you have a patriotic thing, you can't get rid of it. Now that there has been this allowance for like, all right, we maybe we can skip the anthem or maybe we can kneel during the anthem. Like that stuff can get taken away. Like that stuff has not become the new normal. And the transition back to like the old way of doing things, I think is going to be fraught. And like, that's what we're seeing with this Maverick situation. Yeah, I, I, Adam Silver certainly had the opportunity to leave it up to teams, you know, we have a now and he had a he had an example of a team making a decision that had no impact, no one noticed, um, and he could have just said, going forward, we think it's in the best interest of the league to allow individual teams to make the decision on what to do, and I think that would allow right wing owners, who are still the majority in the NBA and in all professional sports to exert whatever sort of influence they wanted to on their teams and more progressive people like, like Mark Cuban to say, we're not doing it. Period. I mean, it's really Stephen just said the more progressive. Say, he didn't say, pro- he didn't say progressive. <laughs> I wouldn't go that yeah, far. Right. Would I, was you? Like, yeah, I was like, Oh wow. Okay. How far do you want me to go? I mean, he's not that progressive. Um, but is it, I don't know if it's a question of, again, commercial fear, sponsor fear, fan blowback. It's the timidity that is involved in going along with the history here instead of saying, we're going to try to do this differently. We're going to listen to our athletes. You know, Brittany Griner and her teammate Brianna Turner during the bubble said that we don't think this should be played at all. You know, that's a valid ever played in before sporting events. And for someone like Mark Cuban to listen to athletes, but also follow through with it and take a stand against the league or encourage an alternative solution, like giving me the individual ability to do that would be one step forward. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You said that about what Brittany Griner, um, you know, said about, you know, we don't think it should be played at all because that's the thing. Very few athletes have actually come out and said, you should not play the national anthem. Basically what they said is that if you want to stand, it's fine. Go right ahead. We want to opt out of that. And if you remember back at the beginning of the bubble when Myers Leonard of the Miami Heat, who is white, even though you wouldn't know it from his name, uh, he stood for the anthem and two of his teammates wrapped their arms around him as they knelt, right? So the thing that I I, kind of just can't get over here is that Essentially, black people and black players in particular are just asking people to respect their decisions. They're not saying like when when Greg Popovich and Becky Hammond wanted to stand but during the anthem, nobody called them out. They were just like, you, that's fine. You go right ahead and do it. We're going to kneel. And that's the only thing. Black people and black Americans, 
people just cannot stand a critique from them, no matter, no matter what form it comes in. And so even if we say, we respect your right to stand, please respect our right to kneel, even that just goes too far. And it's just really disappointing because this has just been an ongoing issue my entire life. Before I was born, it was John Carlos and Tommy Smith. When I was a teenager, it was Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. There's Tony Smith Thompson at you know Manhattanville College in the early aughts and to Colin Kaepernick. And it just feels like we're still having this debate over and over again. And it's just a matter of respecting black people's right to dissent. And it's not respected in this country. And that's why we keep ending up here over and over again. Yeah, and some essential background here that we haven't mentioned is that Francis Scott Key called Black people a distinct and inferior race. And so it's not just about what is happening in the country now. It's like what this song means and where it came from. And I also think it's important to remember um, when the NFL in week one of the 2020 season decided that um, they were going to have Lift Every Voice and Sing in tandem with the national anthem as the kind of like most mealy-mouthed possible solution. It's like the uh, five-blade razor of, uh, <laughs> of, of uh, fixes. Just keep adding more songs until, uh, until we figure this thing out. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. No matter what the sport, it's easier to win at home. We all know it from personal experience and from looking at the numbers. But the weird thing is, we don't really know why home field advantage is a thing. There are a bunch of hypotheses, but no agreed-upon consensus. The pandemic, then, would be a natural experiment, a way to test out all those different theories. If you think crowd noise is the biggest factor, well, there are now home games with no crowds. If you think home teams have the advantage because they don't have to travel, that's now been tested by all the games in bubbles. In a piece published in Slate last week, Alex Kirshner ran through all the data What he found was that home field advantage is definitely real and that it's definitely diminished in true neutral environments like the NBA bubble. But there's a lot that's still a mystery. Um, What were some of your main takeaways, Stefan? Well, I think we should start with just stating that the study of home field advantage relies on win-loss tie data, but also a lot of conclusions that are based on uncontrollable factors, which you alluded to, the state of mind of referees, the loudness of fans, the effect of individual factors like travel and the comforts of home. So it's like social science slash statistics and what made the pandemic or what makes the pandemic such a good laboratory to look at home field is that it flattened a lot of these variables. And in doing so, it confirmed a lot of what people who have studied this, including our friend John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated, who co-wrote a book in 2011 called Scorecasting, what they found the most notable, but not everything that they concluded. It really is muddy. I think we should get bubbles out of the way first because they're just like this weirdo science experiment. They, I think they end up being more like a control for studying home field advantage and bubbles, right? Eliminated everything. 
The road team disadvantages of travel, hotels, smaller locker rooms, booing fans, subconsciously oppositional referees, and then the home team advantages of the comforts of home, sleeping in your own bed, cheering fans, subconsciously favorable refs. No surprise, the NBA, the WNBA, the NHL bubbles eliminated almost any home court edge, even where the basketball leagues tried to simulate one by piping in music and noise and hockey which already offers these built-in strategic advantages like uh, face-offs and line changes for home teams. The playoff home winning So all the people that thought home field advantage was based on like train sound effects for uh, for the home team? Not uh, the case. That, that, that's, been, that's been disproven? That has been disproven. And okay, the numbers, though, the numbers were really stark. The playoff home winning percentage in NBA games in normal arenas is in the mid-60s. In the bubble, it completely vanished. Same in the WNBA. And in the NHL, the designated home team won less than 40% of playoff games, which is just sort of statistically weird. Yeah, well, that is especially weird to me because you'd think a team that has what is ostensibly home court advantage in a neutral site would still be the better team, right? Like, you would think they would win according to how often the better team or the team with the better record would win. Uh, in an overrepresentative sample, but that just didn't happen. But yeah, you know, the one thing that's sort of funny is we decided to do this topic and I remembered scorecasting. And I guess I misremembered scorecasting from so many years ago. I was like, oh, scorecasting has resolved this, that home field advantage is not really a thing. I don't know why I got like... Because <laughs> you confused it with the hot hand, which I always yeah, do. Right. Like, which one is real, which yes. one isn't, how real are exactly. they? Yeah. Exactly. I was like, oh, wait, this is still a thing. I didn't understand that we were still like, this was up for debate. But everything that we know about this seems intuitive, right? That, yeah, of course, like on the margins, if you have two professional level teams things on the margins would make a difference. Whether the other team gets to stay at home, uh, it goes through its routine, whether it's used to its locker rooms and everything else, and, you know, knowing whatever, you know, marginal uh, advantages you might derive from playing on a specific court over and over again. So, like, knowing there's a dead spot on the court or, you know, uh, the, the, side, the grass on this side of the field, whatever, is a little higher than others. You know, teams monkey with that stuff or they used to certainly a lot more um you know 20 30 years ago so everything about this seems fairly intuitive and you know the one thing i was thinking about especially now with the nba because things have changed so much like well, at least when the bubble they flattened the home court advantage that teams would have had like right you take that away they don't get to play at home they don't have their fans all that other sort of stuff but the thing that was most compelling to me is that, oh, yeah, like right now, while NBA teams are traveling across the country, they've got to worry about getting infected on a plane, getting from the airport to the hotel while they're at the hotel, then from the hotel to the arena. Like there's so many different points in which you would be worried about getting infected. Like I'm a person that used to travel, you know, two, three times a month over the last seven years. I haven't done it in a year. And it's so much more comforting to not have to worry about that sort of shit. And I can only imagine Players are humans, too. Of course it would affect them, wouldn't it? Totally. And all of the stuff that you laid out, Stefan, about the bubbles and the fact that home field advantage goes away, like, that's a good kind of sanity check, right? Like, it's it's what we expected, and it, it all sort of makes sense. The parts that are the most interesting are um, the, the things that didn't go as we expect, Major League Baseball played the whole season 
in home stadiums. There's a home team advantage, even without a crowd, because you get to um, bat last and that doesn't go away. But you've got like cardboard cutouts in the stands and home field advantage in baseball was higher than it's been since 2010, 56% of games won by the home team. And then in college football, where, as, as we've discussed at length, nobody's like following the same rules. Like some stadiums have fans, some don't. Um, but the one, one thing that was pretty consistent is like that the quote unquote rent a win was not a thing in, in college football where you don't have teams just going on the road and like getting paid money to lose. And, and that's how you rack up a lot of home wins in college football. But as, as Alex Kirshner wrote in this piece, 60% win rate, which is the same as it is historically in college football, even without those rental wins. And so it seems like um, in, in college football, even without crowds um, and even without those easy wins, you still have this normal home field advantage, which is confusing. Well, no, is it though? Because it seems like to me, especially for non-professionals, amateurs, that all the obstacles while traveling would be even more pronounced for, for people that are not professionals, right? That don't get to focus solely on their sport. They've got so many other things to do. It seems to me that, yeah, if they had to travel, that of course that would exacerbated whether or not there's fans in the crowd or not right I don't, I don't know maybe that's just me but it, it seems to be that in college it makes the most sense that, that but the that, thing that the, the thing that you affect things most i mean the thing that you mentioned at the top joel i think is right is that there are so many different factors here and you can mention you know the thing that you mentioned made sense but also it's like i remember the season lsu season opener at home against mississippi state where like mississippi state goes into Tiger Stadium and for all manner of reasons, like wins that game. But like, I would have a hard time imagining that they would have been able to go into a full Tiger Stadium with, um, you know, sold out with with fans in full voice and come out of there with a victory. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. This was like a bad, bad season for LSU and in lots of ways. But like, that's the thing that's so fascinating about this is that like one of the findings and scorecasting and I don't think there's been anything in the pandemic to necessarily disprove this, is that crowd noise, like just crowd noise qua crowd noise is not a major determining factor. And like, I've been in all sorts of games. I imagine that you guys have too, where the home crowd is so loud, like in the Superdome or Tiger Stadium, wherever, where you're just sitting there like, I can't imagine how the road team could like possibly win this game. It's like, part of it is like magical thinking of like, you want to believe that you as a member of the crowd or other members of the crowd can like will the team to victory. But also like objectively, it seems like really hard as a road team to win in those cases. And so it just feels weird that it's not true, Stefan. Well, except that it also could point to something that I think we tend to under um, respect, which is just how good athletes are at shutting out environmental factors like crowd noise, where they're going to be less And athletes good. Som- sometimes talk about how it actually makes them more hype more to like hype, play on the right. road and want to prove the right. other team wrong. Right, but the, where the I think environmental run. factors do play a role, and I think this accounts for a lot of baseball, is that every baseball stadium is different. Backdrops are different, sight lines are different, the grass is different, the outfield walls are different. And I think in you know baseball shows that 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 really is a strong correlation to winning, and you take everything else out, and maybe that's the most important thing. 
The other um, factor that I was really interested in is the one that gets a ton of attention, which is officiating um, and whether referees are influenced by crowd noise, particularly, or just the psychology of knowing that they're in a particular place and therefore are subconsciously led to favor the home team. And the, you know, the, 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 the data is mixed. It was less pronounced in baseball than in normal, but in soccer, in the in the English Premier League, Alex Kirshner found a study that visiting teams were earning fewer yellow cards and more penalty kick opportunities when the stadiums were empty. Um, so that's a pretty strong indication that, yeah, referees might be affected by their environment. But in the NFL, there's no right. evidence that penalty yardage changed without crowds. And like that's the thing that I thought was both kind of frustrating, but actually great about Alex's piece is like, the truth is that the the way that you get this wrong, this question wrong about home field advantage is by thinking, oh, it's, it's one thing. Oh, and like, we're going to figure it out. Oh, it's officiating. Oh, it's crowds. And it's like, okay, this is like a multivariable problem. If you look across different sports, you're going to find some that support different theories and some that don't. And so like laying this out in all of its complexity and having the humility to say, you know, there is no one answer, um, but I'm just going to like lay out all of the findings and you can like look at all of it. I thought it was like a model uh, act of journalism. Yeah, no. And you're right. I think it's like game to game, right? Like you said, I mean, anything could happen. Like it's hard to build in all the many different things that can go wrong when any one team is traveling and one team is at home and has the advantage. Like, you know, maybe your flight was delayed, right? And you got into your hotel late the night before. And, Especially and, and, if you're in the WNBA. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And as Alex pointed out, I was like, you know, yeah, like after a while, the home team just totally gra- gradually built up its advantage over the visiting team, which, you know, I guess makes a little bit of sense. And, and again, typically... And it's particularly because the WNBA, so much of it was the playoffs, like the better team is the team that supposedly has the home court advantage in the bubble. So like, let's not forget that. But uh, it just speaks to all the many different factors that go into this sort of stuff. Um, and it's it's kind of confusing to get your arm around. But I guess all things being said, all things being equal, all things being said here, you'd rather be the team playing at home than the team on the road no matter right, what. Right. And the other thing to point out is that historically, home field advantage has declined a lot. Um, the, yeah, NBA, really the, the NBA is the starkest example of this. In like the mid-1970s, home teams won games at almost 70%, a 70% clip, and it's now down to just over 50 53% or so. Um, and I think that probably speaks to the increase in the amount of sheer talent in sports so that the margins between the best players and the quote-unquote worst players in any league are much thinner than they were in in previous generations. But but travel is also easier and right. um, instant replay is I think a major factor sure. that a, a bunch of these stories <laughs> mention is that like if there is a officiating bias towards the home team but then you can challenge the calls or there is some system in place to look at the calls again then that um, bias can be corrected for and so maybe that's a f- factor yeah, that, that, in how in modern there a, times there was a study that was done in the NFL that um, that indicated exactly that like it's a total shift from the 1990s home teams won about 60% of the games in the NFL and it's declined to like 52% in I think it was 20, 2019 
Well, not only has travel changed, but like elite athletes have changed too, in that they're so much more used to traveling long distance at an earlier age than they ever were. When I was in high school, you would play teams within your area. If you're an elite athlete, you're playing 707 tournaments all across the country. You're playing AAU tournaments all across the country. Travel is just built into being an elite athlete as you get older now. And it's just it just wasn't true before. So all these kids have so much more experience playing on the road in unfamiliar environments. And so it, it stands the reason that like that gap would close as, it, as we went along here. Yeah, Joel, let's end by um, kind of drawing on your personal experience. Because I want to know, like, okay, let's, if you blank out, like, all of this, like, research and everything that you've heard here, like, when you were playing, what did you think about home field advantage? Like, was it a thing? And, like, if it was, what created it? Like, did you think, oh, like, we're less likely to win on the road because the crowd is loud? It's not necessarily that you would think it was less likely to win, but I remember my last high school football game, just for as an example, we on the day of the game, we traveled by bus from Houston to Dallas, got to the arena, I got to the stadium like, you know, two hours before the game, before kickoff. And like, we're, I just remember us putting on our pads. So I was like, man, I do not feel ready. Like, this sucks. Like, I was already, and of course, we lost 14 to nothing. And I'm not saying the Dallas Jesuit was better than us, <laughs> I don't think they were. <laughs> it seems like you're saying the exact opposite. I, just, I feel like they had an advantage that day that we just did not have. So, I definitely kicked better in uh, the preseason games that I was allowed to put a uniform on with the Broncos uh, at home in Denver. Yeah, it's totally. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members... We're going to talk about Draymond Green's allegation that there is a double standard about how we talk about NBA players who want to be traded and NBA teams who want to trade their players. Does Draymond have a point? What are the flaws, if any, in that comparison? Tiris discuss. You have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. So... Over the years, former NFL players have grown so used to the league's efforts to deny them health benefits in retirement that they adopted the phrase, delay, deny, and hope you die. It's not surprising that the former players have adopted this bit of dark humor, given the hundreds of lives and millions of dollars at stake in the ongoing battle over the NFL's concussion settlement. The NFL has paid out about $800 million in the five years since the settlement was affirmed. At least two former players, Najee Davenport and Keevan Henry, who are both black, said they've been denied their cut of the money because of race-based benchmarks used to evaluate their claims. Their stories were at the center of a recent investigation by ABC News, which covered their lawsuit against the NFL. Davenport and Henry have accused the league of explicitly and deliberately discriminating against black players who have filed dementia-related claims. So today we have Ryan Smith of ESPN and ABC News, who reported out this story and spoke with the players about their frustration with the league's attempts to deny their claims. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Um, could you just take us through how the players say race and racism have factored into their claims? Sure, and uh, thanks for having me. You know, 
what they're essentially saying is that there is a formula that the NFL used that's used to evaluate their claims that is based on race and ends up having the effect of denying them compensation. So this is how it works. When a player uh, believes that they had head trauma that caused lasting effects from playing on the field, they can, under the settlement agreement between the NFL and the former players, uh, they can go to a neuropsychologist approved by the NFL. And that psychologist evaluates them and tries to figure out their level of, uh, let's say, cognitive decline. They then make a recommendation to a claims administrator who, didn't, who, who decides that claim. And so what the players believe is happening, according to their lawsuit, is that when they went to their neuropsychologist to get their examinations, that those neuropsychologists, and in different phases of this, and we could talk about this, that a formula had to be applied, or at least they believe the NFL required a formula to be applied, that assumes that before Black players even walk on the field, they have a lower level of cognition than white players. And therefore, when it comes time to evaluating their cognition in these examinations, if you apply this demographic correction, as the NFL calls it, it's harder for Black players to prove that they have cognitive problems as a result of what happened to them on the field. So what happened to these players, and they have different scenarios, but one player uh, submitted to neuropsychologists that basically said they don't have a level of cognition that gets compensation. Another had a claims administrator approve it. The NFL appealed, saying he didn't apply the right norms, and that claim was eventually denied. These are called Heaton norms, and they're named for a, a neuropsychologist who developed them. And they appear to be racist from the get-go, but they were designed based on the entire population, not a small group like NFL players, most of whom went to college. And their stated purpose is to help prevent misdiagnoses in neuropsychological cases. Instead, Ryan, it seems to me that they're being used here as a tool to injure the dominant class of plaintiffs in this case. So it feels like a misappropriation of these standards to me. Is that an argument that's being made? That's exactly the arguments that's being made. I, you know, it's the irony of all this. It's supposed to be used as a diagnostic tool to better understand the patient, yet it's being used, at least according to these players, against the patient to deny them compensation. So the idea behind these norms was it's to get a better understanding. And it's not just race, by the way. This demographic correction, that's the formula that neuropsychologists are supposed to use in evaluating players. It includes age and education, but it also includes race. The idea behind it, was to say, I need to get a better understanding of my patient and where they're coming from. It's almost, you can look at it like an individualized basis. You go in to see a doctor, the doctor wants to get to know you. And so they might use different things about your background to try to understand you better. Here, what the players are saying is, it's being applied to say, this is what we assume about you. Your level of brain functioning before you even started playing was lower than white players. Therefore, when you come in and you say you had these kind of head injuries sustained on the field, you started from a lower point, so you should be showing a lower point to get compensation. And that's why when I talked to these players, one of the things they mentioned to me was, hey, I, I bled and sweat with my fellow white players and players of other cultures on the field. Why is it that it, when it comes to this, I am looked at differently simply because of the color of my skin? Yeah, and just the idea that, okay, the most instructive or informative thing about this person when we're looking at these test results is that he's black. 
as opposed to that he's like an individual. Like, there's no baseline testing here. Like, we don't know what Najee Davenport or Keevan Henry's numbers were when they joined the league, right? They're just looking at them as like, if you are an average Black person, then this is what your number should be. And it's like not looking at them as individuals. And, um, you know, it it seems to me like, um, you know, just like based on your reporting, Ryan, that if this test is being used to exclude people, exclude the majority of, of players um, in, in the league that are Black, then you have to think about, okay, what are the like values here? What are the politics here? As opposed to like, what is the, you know, it, the, the public health rationale? Like this doesn't seem like it's, it's really based on, um, you know, public health rather than politics or values. Well, Josh, you make a good point. And, and so let me, let me give you the NFL side of this. They would say, A, this is something that we agreed to in the settlement agreement between the players and the NFL. So they would say this has already been sort of hashed out in the court process, in the lengthy process it took to come to this settlement. So in a way, it's almost as if saying, hey, that's on your rep for not making sure this wasn't here. The other thing I think the NFL has said throughout all of this is this is not required. That's their position. This is not required, that it's a tool that doctors can use to try to figure out more about the patient. And they have said explicitly, this is not meant to, to, to discriminate against people. It's meant to do the exact opposite. It's meant to help us tell more about the patient in order to understand it. I think what you're hitting on is what the players have been saying here, is you're painting the entire group with a broad brush instead of trying to understand the player individually. And that's where the tension comes in. But the NFL keeps sort of pushing back on this and saying, not only is this what we agreed to, but it's also something that doctors don't have to impose if they don't want to. Now, emails that we found sort of fly in the face of that. And we can talk about that a little bit more, but but that's what the NFL is saying. that This is not a requirement. This is not something meant to hold people back. It's in their mind meant to make sure that everybody is treated fairly. Well, to, to drill down on that for a second, Ryan, they say that it's not required, but they use that as the basis to challenge claims, though, right? Like they say, oh, the doctors don't have to use this standard, but we're still going to challenge it on the basis that, that, that they did not use that baseline. Is that right? That is where it gets really interesting, and you're absolutely right. In Najee Davenport's case, he went to a doctor that took a look at him and believed that he had a certain level of cognitive decline that required compensation. So he went to a neuropsychologist. That, that neuropsychologist, Dr. Charles Golden, did not apply these demographic norms. He just said, yeah, he's got this. He, he, he seems like a guy who, who should get a claim. Sent that to the claims administrator, and that was approved. So Najee Davenport gets the award. The NFL appeals that, saying, among other things, you didn't use, you had an improper use of the norms. You didn't apply these norms. So it becomes this really confusing thing when you talk about this story. It becomes, well, you're saying it's not required, but at the same time, you're appealing and saying doctors didn't use it. And that kind of dovetails into what we found when we did more research on this. And we found these really shocking emails between neuropsychologists who are a part of this program, going back and forth, talking about how they felt they it was required for them. One doctor said that if he didn't apply the norms, he would get mul- multiple inquiries from the NFL. Another doctor said he felt that the norms did bottom line discriminate. And there was another doctor who weighed in and said, 
we could have been better advocates for players in establishing this kind of thing. But one thing that really stood out to me in some of these email interactions was a doctor said, hey, if this is something that's not required, then we've been doing it wrong. And, and, and I'm paraphrasing there. That is so critical because, guys, the NFL right now is 70% Black. If you think about these two cases and you think about the fact that there might have been other doctors who didn't understand this idea that the NFL is saying that this was not required, then you have to imagine, are there other people out there whose claims have been denied for what the NFL is saying it is not a required formula, but doctors were feeling as if it was. And there's just no data on that that's been uncovered yet, correct? That's what's tricky. Yeah, there's been about 3,000 claims, about 1,200 have been paid out, somewhere around $800 million. But the NFL is not releasing demographic data, so we can't exactly tell who among players and their families filing claims who has actually received compensation. And so, Ryan, in the story, I was struck by Keevan telling you that he was never healthy in eight years of football. So um, can we just play a quick clip of that? I was never healthy my, my whole career. I, had, I was dealing with something. Both ankles, both knees, um, both elbows, both wrists, all my fingers have been broken at least once. Uh, hyperextended elbow, um, turf toe, I had that on both, both feet. Man, the list goes on and on. So, you know, hearing what Keevan says here, that just sounds so debilitating. And you talk with him and you talk with uh, Keevan's wife, too. Can you just tell us a little bit about their lives right now, like how they're actually living and making it on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely, Joel. You know, take, I'll take you from the beginning of their day. Keevan Henry, in order to get out of bed, has to be massaged by his wife, manipulated. And we have a, we have a segment in our reporting where she's trying to manipulate him and massage him in order to get him out of bed. And he hears a crack and he's like, did you hear that? And she's like, yeah, I heard that. And that's just his normal everyday experience. He talked to me about how he has gone days in a room because he just doesn't want to come out. He suffers from all different kinds of ailments. He has trouble moving around. And one thing I think that we wanted to sort of show in this reporting and that I think sometimes people don't understand is when people see NFL players, they see gladiators on the field, guys who are indestructible. But And they also see, I think, people who have made a lot of money playing the game. But I think what they don't realize is a number of players do not have very much money and they are suffering multiple injuries every single game, concussions. Keevan told me he thought he suffered more than a dozen. He talks about all the different ailments he has. And so his daily life is a constant struggle just to be able to move, to be able to interact, to be able to survive in the world. And his wife, and this happens with so many former players, his wife has to put aside her dreams, her work goals, her ability to make money in order to take care of him because she's concerned for what his safety might be like if she's not there pretty much 24-7. So his life is a constant combination of pain and struggle in order to survive. And when you talk about the resources he might have in order to take care of himself, those are severely lacking. All he's got, all his family has is the NFL settlement and trying to get compensation through that settlement. So I think we've all seen that with the COVID pandemic, it's really important to think about the ways in which race interacts with health and with public health. But I think we've also seen that 
just saying, oh, different people of different races respond to things differently is not sufficient. And I was looking at this piece from Stat News published last year, and it was about lung function. And it says that many studies have found that on average, black individuals have lower lung volumes than white people. And so similar to what we've been talking about when um, lung function algorithms are um, talked about, then there's this assumption that black people have lower lung volumes and that it's normal to have a lower lung volume if you're black. But then I'm going to quote from this piece, by using these lung function algorithms, are we blinding ourselves in society to the health harms of structural racism, effectively normalizing lung damage that black Americans suffer from dirtier air, dirtier jobs, and substandard medical care? And so I just want to put that out there. But also, like, Ryan, what is the NFL trying to do here in nickel and diming these players, like even if we were to, I, I don't stipulate, but even if we, we were to stipulate that like technically these guys don't deserve the money, it's it looks so bad for the NFL to be treating their players like this. And maybe they think that people just don't care. I don't know. Like, do you have any sense based on your reporting or just based on your own opinions, like why the NFL is taking the stance? Yeah, I'm going to assume their tech for the purposes of answering that. They would say, first of all, they would say, we're not nickeling and diming the players. We've paid out over $800 million, and they would cite a lot of that information. The other thing they would say is, hey, this is, an out- this is, this is, this is the outcome of what we negotiated, and we always intended this to be something that treated people equally. I think one of the problems that the NFL is struggling with on a story like this is it's great that you negotiated something in court, but we all know that sometimes when agreements are made, they don't always turn out the way that, let's say if the NFL was really trying to establish some sense of equality through using these norms, it's not, it hasn't, at least according to these players, hasn't turned out that way. They believe this lawsuit, the NFL does, is entirely misguided. They believe that this lawsuit is sort of missing the forest for the trees of we're trying to employ a diagnostic tool to evaluate the claims properly. But you bring up a great point, Josh, that we are in a day and age where when you find out about something like this, you have to at least say we need to make a change. Now, Roger Goodell was asked about this around Super Bowl time, and he said, look, we're going to look into this. And he, he talked about possibly being open to making changes. But that, I think, is going to be a tough thing for someone like Kevin Henry or someone like Najee Davenport, because they need the help now. And these policies are in place, and they are keeping them from compensation. I wanted to mention something to you guys that we found in looking into this story. You know, we, we worked with a, uh, we looked at some data analysis, and there was an NFL-affiliated clinician who looked at some of the data from about a group of 100, I'd say maybe 95, 94 black players, former players. They took a look at the scores, okay, of these players. And they found that if you looked at these players as if they were white, 34 qualified for compensation. But when you apply the norms, only 10 qualified. That is huge data right there. And, and it would be easy for someone on the other side of that to say, well, that's a sampling. There might be other players who don't test that way. But I think, Josh, it comes back to your point. This reporting that we've done and what these what this lawsuit is saying is this is what's happening to some of the players. And you have to you have to think, even if it's happening to one, 
something has to change. Even if one person has sustained multiple head injuries from playing the game and they're being denied compensation for something that, at least on its face, according to the lawsuit, seems to treat them differently from white players, something has to be done to address that. And I think it's going to be a tough sell for the NFL, even though they're saying, hey, we're not requiring this. With other with with the emails we found, some doctors saying they felt like it was required, or hey, this is a diagnostic tool with players actually showing that they've been treated differently based on the use of that tool. That something's got to change now. Well, especially at a time when the NFL is trying to present a new image as a league that is sensitive to racial concerns of its players and to social justice. And then the second part of it is that. You know, you pull back and you realize that this entire brain injury settlement has been contentious, disputed, and and criticized by a lot of representatives of players' organizations. Look, it's not going to cover players who are in the league after 2015. The amount of money is probably going to run out at some point. There have been tons of pushback against the case itself. So... You have to think on, you know, with this criticism and the more the broader criticisms, if it's possible in a legal context to do something about the broader parameters of the settlement. Yes, Stefan, but and I'll say yes, but because I think this goes to something you brought up, the idea that this settlement has faced a lot of criticism. Since this settlement has been in place, there has been constant back and forth about this isn't right. We have to change this. We have to change that. I could see that in some people viewing this from the NFL's point of view, they might say, you know what, we've had 30 complaints about this lawsuit. Here's another complaint. This is not the way we think it's working out. And if we give on this, then we're going to have more complaints. That that I'm a lawyer by training, and that's sort of my legal mind coming into it. It's, hey, if I let this happen, then what else is going to happen? But you also mentioned the idea of society today and how we look at things. And I want to tell you guys about something Keevan Henry told me. I asked him, you know, in, in the context of where the players stood last year on Black Lives Matter, how they demanded that the commissioner in the league acknowledge Black Lives Matter and uh, try to do things for the Black community. And then when the commissioner came out and acknowledged those things, I asked him, how does he process that? And Keevan Henry felt that that was a lie. He felt like it sounds good to say that kind of stuff. Sounds great. Makes you sound like you care. But if you're letting this happen, you don't care. And that's at the crux of this. At the very heart of this, is we could talk, we can go back and forth about all the legal reasons for why this might not change. I think there's been a lot of fatigue over changing this settlement on both sides. But at the same time, what you're seeing here are players arguing that we are being traded unfairly based on race. And as long as that's happening, the NFL will be open to arguments of hypocrisy unless they do something to address it. Wow, that's a great place to put a pin in it, um, Ryan. You did that was a fantastic story, man. Thank you for covering it, and we hope we get to have you back at some point, whether to follow up on this or maybe something more fun. But uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning, man. Hey, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Love to come back. All right, awesome. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. 
We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. And we got to get back to Stefan's appearance in the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle that was created by Lisa Bunker. Did you know Lisa Bunker? Is there any kind of like personal? There's no conflict. Sort of, no. No. Okay. So so Lisa Bunker is a uh, elected representative in the New Hampshire House of Representatives, and along with Jerry Cannon, um, the state's first transgender state legislators, and um, has written a couple books that both sound very cool: Zenobia July and Felix YZ. I do have one minor beef not with lisa bunker but with the like write-up you know they do that kind of little daily kind of or the the daily write-up of like oh how to solve like after solving the puzzle like here's the like fun stuff in it it mentions stefan fatsis as an engaging sports biz commentator on npr i was a little beef i don't that too I don't, I don't take issue with the engaging part, but with the on NPR part, I feel like it was a little opportunity to throw a uh, hang up and listen a little bit of love, well, but you know, also I haven't appeared regularly on NPR since <laughs> like the end of 2014. I don't want to appear churlish to complain about that. I just is want it, to say, I, isn't it better for Stefan though, that he, he's known by NPR. I mean, you know, it's like NPR is a little bit, I mean, we have to admit that NPR is a little bit bigger name than. Again, I have oh, wow. regular. I was on NPR for like seventeen years, Joel, but I stopped doing it in tw- yeah. at the end of twenty fourteen. So yeah. it's it's kind of always been. A little well, it's bit. like uh, you know, like a rod. Uh, you know, is always known. Well, it, I don't know. What, uh, King, the, the uh, you know the greatest athletes. You know, Tom Seaver's a man as a Laker. Yeah. You know, what I mean? Tom yeah. Tom Brady is a Patriot. Tom, yeah, Brady, Tom Brady is a, a Patriot. Patriot. Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. All I all I have to say about this, Joel, is like with that attitude, then hang up's never gonna be bigger than NPR. So um, <laughs> self-fulfilling. All right. The we, we got a little off track here. The point is celebrating Lisa Bunker for her excellent uh, Sunday puzzle. Stefan, what is your Lisa Bunker? Very grateful to Lisa Bunker. Thank you, Lisa Bunker, for including me. All right, I as I mentioned during the segment, I went down a, a newspaper database rabbit hole and I've got more on sports and the national anthem. The Chicago Cubs for decades had a peacetime policy of playing the Star-Spangled Banner only on opening day, holidays, and special occasions. In 1947, the presidents of the American and National Leagues suggested that all teams take the Cubs' approach. As the war recedes into the background for most people, Harold Case wrote in the Boston Globe in April 1947, there is a growing desire among sports promoters to put the grand old tune back in the mothballs until it is again needed to pluck the eager strings of patriotism. That kind of gives away the game. Case wrote that the promiscuous playing of the anthem results in disrespect. Masses of people no longer stand at attention while it is played, but laugh, talk, and smoke without concern. This was 1947. Case reported that the song wasn't played before a three-game preseason series between the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Braves, and almost no one noticed. In 1948, the editors of the United States Coast Guard magazine said it was time to stop playing the anthem at the drop of a hat. 
They singled out boxing cards. Quote, a prize fight is neither the time nor the place for playing the national anthem, the editors wrote. The anthem is insulted by the wild whistling, yelling, and bellowing of excited spectators who impatiently wait for the last note so that they may proceed with their interest in legalized mayhem. I'm just going to leave this one right here. According to a column in the Washington Post in the 1960s, George Preston Marshall, the segregationist owner of the city's NFL team, at one point quit playing the anthem entirely and had the team band play, quote, a dozen choruses of Dixie, end quote, instead. The Washington team did play Dixie alongside the anthem until the mid-1960s. In 1966, the Chicago White Sox decided to play God Bless America because fans weren't singing along to the Star-Spangled Banner. The team's GM told Arthur Gorlick of the Chicago Daily News that he guessed that was because it's a pretty hard piece to sing, but Gorlick reported that fans behaved exactly the same during God Bless America as they had during the Star-Spangled Banner. They rise, trying not to spill the paper cups of beer some hold in their hands. Others take a few quick puffs on their cigars before waiting for the echo of the last strains of organ music to fade. Gorlick asked the Cubs about not playing any patriotic music before most of their games. Quote, the fans don't seem to care, the team's promotion manager said, as one White Sox fan also told Gorlick, I come out to see a baseball game, not sing songs. Of course, American Legion and VFW types and sports columnists all protested. What in the world has happened to America? One letter writer asked. And the White Sox caved. They handed out red, white, and blue ballots and asked fans to vote for the anthem, God Bless America, or America the Beautiful. The ballot included a McCarthy-like pledge that each time I attend a White Sox game, I will sing along loud and clear. The anthem won in a landslide. The team flew in band leader Mitch Miller, exploded fireworks, and for one night anyway, most people sang. In 1967, the Cubs decided that it was no longer peacetime, even if opposition to Vietnam was growing and restored the daily anthem. With the world situation what it is, we feel it apropos to play the national anthem at each home game now, the team said. Little wonder that Chicago cops cracked the heads of anti-war protesters during the Democratic Convention the next year. In 1972, the owner of the Kansas City Royals, Ewing Kaufman, cited disrespect during the song for deciding to play the anthem only on Sundays and holidays. That lasted two games. Kaufman said the team received 200 calls and letters accusing it of attacking the flag, the Republic, the Founding Fathers all of which sounds depressingly familiar. Finally, in 1973, the organizers of a big track meet at Madison Square Garden announced that they wouldn't play the anthem. Just two days earlier, the entire Eastern Michigan University track team had been kicked out of another meet in New York when three black members of the team stretched while the anthem played. And the previous summer, after finishing 1-2 in the 400 meters, U.S. sprinters Vince Matthews and Wayne Collette were kicked out of the Olympics in Munich after they didn't face the flag and talked and fidgeted during their medal ceremony. That's an afterball on its own. 
The Madison Square Garden officials said that playing the anthem at meets was always tricky. Few people were in the stands at the start of meets and playing it in the usual spot at the night before the mile, the marquee race, was unfair to the runners, but they admitted that bagging the anthem was about avoiding controversy, a way to keep black athletes from protesting and fans from booing them for protesting. The chairman of the event told the New York Times that what he called the black factor had crossed our minds. One doesn't relish incidents that disrupt an event, he said. The meets decision lasted one day. The management of the Garden announced that the anthem would be played before every future sporting event. The U.S. Olympic Committee said it was deluged with irate calls, and a bill was introduced in the New York City Council that would have made it illegal to start a sporting event without playing the anthem. The track meet officials said they would be delighted to continue the custom of playing the song, and they did. The African-American jazz singer Ethel Ennis sang it at the meet. The crowd of 12,000 cheered loudly, and there were no protests. Wow. You know, just like I said during our segment, uh, we've been having the same debates over and over again for even longer than... I thought like much much longer than even the life of uh, professional sports in this country. So it's just yeah, it's sad. Maybe someday, maybe some other hang up and listen. We'll talk about the time me and my cousin went to a Rockets game around the Mahmoud Abdul Rauf time, and I we did refuse to stand for the anthem, and some old uh, old guy you know commanded us to stand up. We didn't, but could have got a little dicey there. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad it didn't get dicey for you. The Pelicans coach Stan Van Gundy tweeted, if you think the anthem needs to be played before sporting events, then play it before every movie, concert, church service, and the start of every workday at every business. Um, I went to go see a movie when we were on vacation in Thailand once, and they played the royal anthem before movies in Thailand, and you're like, sit, you're, you know, you're commanded on the screen to, to stand up. And doing that, um, I was like, well, this is really weird. Um, but it's not. It's like It's like no weirder than what we do. And it's just the the way um, that we've been trained to think that it's normal in this context and like weird in front of a movie. It like makes no sense at all. Why don't we do the Pledge of Allegiance before work or anything anymore? Oh. Didn't we used to do that as a kid? I, I, like, I, I just, when does that stop? As a matter of fact, I discovered, and I didn't remember this, but that in the early 1990s, I guess after the Gulf War, at one of the Super Bowls, not only were there flyovers and anthems and lots of military, they read the Pledge of Allegiance. But maybe that is an example, like a, a counterargument to what I said about like when you institute this patriot patriotism stuff, it's like impossible to go back. Like we don't do the pledge, I, I think, in um, the same the same way and in and, and the yeah. same amount of context that we did when we were growing up, Joel. Yeah. So they don't do the Pledge of Allegiance in classrooms anymore. I don't think it's like been universally excised, but I think it's way less common. Mm-hmm. Um, our our listeners can chime in and, and correct yeah. us, but that's Give my that's my understanding. That is our show for today, our sports and, and uh, anthem and, and Pledge of Allegiance podcasting hour. Our producer this week was Jasmine Ellis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.